Good morning. This is attorney Steve Levake, your host of Legal Tips on WPRO, answering your questions, giving out advice on this beautiful Sunday. And here we go into another week of interesting topics, news, legal news, information, and of course, your questions. That's what we're here for every week. That's what I do here on the air for you. And that's what we do in our practice. Um, of course, if you've been listening to this show, we've been uh, practicing now 26 years, and that's uh, Rhode Island and Massachusetts. I'm licensed in both states. So if you have a question or maybe you're just listening on a podcast, a lot of people listen on podcasts and they wonder if they can call in. And of course you can, you can call in, you can call in, listen on your podcast and um, ask your question. It's a general legal advice show. So this is um, your opportunity to get some free legal advice based on 26 years experience and also to uh, help yourself and help somebody else who might be listening to this show. Understand that when you call in, you're not only getting an answer for yourself, but perhaps you're answering another 500 folks question who have the same exact question. Um, so this is a really good opportunity for everybody. And the number here is 1-800-321-WPRO or 401-438-9776. So we have a host of questions and interesting news this week. And <clears throat> surprisingly, a lot of questions that have come through have had a variety of questions. Um, whether they're dealing with trial work, which I personally have tried um, a lot of cases over my 26 years, including arguing before the Rhode Island Supreme Court, or whether it involves administrative work, which is more along the lines of uh, probate or zoning or um, even administrative appeals, appeals from probate or appeals from zoning decisions to superior court. That's always been a part of my practice as well. But most people ask questions that are fairly common, common questions. Um, one of the questions I received this week and this was an interesting question, and I think a lot of people don't understand the process. And so process, uh, when we talk about process, we're talking about process of getting from point A to point B. And so in this particular situation, uh, this person was getting divorced, and they said that uh, they received a notice that the divorce is now on the contested track. And so they called me, and they said, you know, Stephen, we had everything worked out with my wife. Um, I went to court. This is what they said to me the other day. I went to court. And when we went to court, uh, the attorney said something different. And I said, no, that's not what I agreed to with my wife. So the attorney got all flustered, apparently, told the judge. And the judge said he said it on the contested track. And he didn't know what that meant. So when you file an action for a divorce, there are two different ways the court tracks your divorce. One way is the court can track your divorce by um, saying that it's a nominal or uncontested divorce. And in that situation, essentially, you're saying to the court, yes, we've worked out all of our issues, and now it's uncontested. So for all intents and purposes, we're going to not use a lot of court time. We're not going to have a trial. The other one is contested. So what's the difference between nominal and contested? And why would one be contested? Well, let's say you have 99% of the issues worked out, except maybe one issue, whatever that one issue is. It could be fighting over a spoon. You could be fighting over 
uh, a vase, maybe a family album, maybe a pet, but everything else is resolved. Maybe you've decided to sell the house, you're going to sell the cars, whatever it is, everything is resolved. But if there's still one issue open, the court cannot hear it as an uncontested because the court can't piecemeal enter a judgment. And so the reality is it becomes contested, which means it's going to be set down on the trial calendar. So in family court, ordinarily, you're either uncontested, where there are no open issues and you're in agreement on everything, or there's contested, which means that it could very well just be one issue. If it's contested, strong advice is to get your own attorney. Um, most of the time, you want your own attorney to represent your interest, even if even if it was uncontested. You want your own attorney. So just understand that when you go through family court, however you're handling your case, whether you're trying to do it on your own, whether you have an attorney, if something turns contested or jumps onto the contested track, that's because there's a dispute as to one issue in the divorce. And you definitely want an attorney who has an understanding about divorce to be able to help you through that process. Another question came in, and this question had to do with the purchase and sales agreement. Now, this person is a limited liability company. They signed a purchase and sales agreement to sell a piece of property that they flipped. Okay, so they bought this property, they renovated it, and now they're selling it to another person. Okay, perfectly fine. They're flipping the real estate. Okay, great. Um, the person who bought it is now suing the person who sold it. And apparently, with all these heavy rains um, in June, the basement flooded. And because it was underground water, it wasn't covered by insurance. And these folks lost everything they had in the basement, all their personal effects, their belongings. In addition to that, it was a finished space, living space. It was like a, um, the house was like a raised ranch. So if you can imagine the downstairs had the living room, uh, two bedrooms, a bathroom, it had storage, all of that's gone. They had to rip everything out. Apparently it's going to cost $60,000, $70,000 to make these repairs. Insurance says we're not covering it because it's uh, groundwater and we don't cover for flooding. You didn't have that rider on your policy. And so now they're suing the company. And they're saying, hey, LLC, seller, you never disclosed that it had water in the basement. Now, this LLC company came to see me because they're facing this lawsuit. And I, they said to me, you know, Stephen, the reality is we didn't know that we there was water in the basement. We had only owned the property for about four or five months during the term of the flip and never had water in the basement. It was never an issue. So now um, we're being sued. So they're bringing the, the complaint. And I'm reading the complaint. And I see their names individually. And I said, well, wait a minute. Did you realize that you're also being sued individually? And the owner of the LLC, well, there's two owners, said, well, how's that possible? How can they sue us individually? And there's a theory in the law that says you can 
do something that's called pierce the corporate veil. And what piercing the corporate veil means is that when you have an LLC or a corporation, you have a protection, a corporate veil, a veil that comes around you that shields you individually, personally, from liability of third parties. And that's why a lot of people use companies. So people will use LLCs to hold real estate or they'll use corporations um, to operate a business. And that way, if something happens in the business, something tragic, something large liability, your individual person cannot be sued. But there is something that's called piercing the corporate veil. So piercing the corporate veil essentially means that you personally, on behalf of the company, have done something so egregious that the court should allow this plaintiff to go around the corporate shield and actually get to you individually. Pretty scary stuff. But you have to have sufficient allegations to get there. And what do I mean by that? I mean, you have to, the allegations contained in the complaint have to rise to a level high enough to say that that is an appropriate remedy. Now, in this particular situation, I reviewed the disclosure sheet, I reviewed the contract, I reviewed the closing paperwork, and then I reviewed the complaint. And it appears the attorney perhaps threw it in without thinking it through. And so we will be filing a motion to dismiss the counts on the complaint as they pertain to my clients individually. However, the counts against the LLC would remain in effect. Now, what's the, you know, how do, first of all, the burden of proof is going to be on the plaintiff. They have the burden of proof to prove that, you know, my clients knew or should have known that this was a problem and that they knew or should have known that they had the, uh, that they sold this property with this material defect. And now that's caused them damages, which is quite unfortunate. Now, my clients, um, when they purchased the house, were the ones who actually refinished the entire basement. They pulled building permits. They had contractor do it. And so you look at that and you say, okay, is this that type of situation where it's so egregious that a court may very well let them go after them individually? Now, I might say no to that. I might say no. I don't think it rises to that level, or at least I'm not seeing it. But, you know, we're going to see how this plays out in court. And, of course, I'll, I'll keep you posted on this one. But just because you have an LLC or a trust doesn't always mean that your shield is going to protect you. Because if you comport yourself in a way where there's egregious or outrageous behavior on behalf of the company, then that behavior might still be responsible personally. So then folks, the next quote, well, what's the point of having an LLC? Well, the point of having an LLC or an S corp or a corp or a partnership is really to provide you that corporate shield. In other words, when you're working with the, your limited liability company or a corporation as a director, a member, or a shareholder, you're working in your capacity as that. It's when you step outside of your role to, in your capacity as a member, shareholder, partner, 
and you step outside of that role and you do something that's offensive in the eyes of the law. For example, fraud, theft, um, something serious that you can be held personally responsible. So 95, 98% of the time, you're still protected from liability, such as the liability I'm describing in this situation. And, um, you know, we'll see what the end result on this case is going to be. But it was an interesting question. I get this question a lot as far as what happens with liability and how does that work? Now, one last question that came in before we head into our break, and I really wanted to get into this. And um, person passed away, and when they passed away, they owned a house. Now, they had two children, and they appointed them co-executors of the will, which means they both have to act and serve together to be able to um, administer the estate. They're co-executors together. One of them lives in the house. The other one does not. You can see where this is headed. The one who does not live in the house, it's been a year and a half, says, look, let's just sell the house or just buy out my share, sis. Uh, you know, you've been there a year and a half with the, with their the family. I mean, I'm, I own my own home. I'm okay. You know, no big deal. Let's just figure it out. Well, apparently this sets the sister off into a tirade. And uh, the sister says, you know, the parents gave you everything, never gave me anything. You should just give me the house. And the brother says, well, why should I just give you the house? Like, why are we arguing about this? It says 50-50 in the will. I mean, 50-50, right? That's 50% me, 50% you. And um, so a brother came to see me to say, what actions can he take to enforce this? Well, the problem is because he's co-executors, there's no independent third party to make a tie-breaking decision. So that person is going to be the probate court. So generally what we do or what I do when I'm in probate and I do a boatload of probate work is we file what's called a petition with the court for instructions. And what we do is we ask the court, we say, court, here is the situation Obviously, she's been in the house a year and a half. Now she's paying the taxes and insurance on the house, but you know she's not paying rent or anything like that. But you know we'd like to sell the house, and we ask the court to say that an order should enter, sell, ordering the sale of the house. And you know the judge may agree with our position or may say, "See me in six months." You don't know, but you have to start there, and that starts what's called litigation. Litigation is essentially a process where two parties have differing opinions and are asking a third person, which is the court, to make a decision to resolve their dispute. That's really what litigation is. Now, sometimes we can plan in advance. For example, if you have two children that are thick as thieves, this ordinarily isn't a problem. They're friends, they're they're, they've got a great relationship. But if you have two children who aren't really that close or three children, sometimes in your will or sometimes in your trust, I put that you select your attorney, you select a third party as an independent a trustee to be a tiebreaker, to make tiebreaker decisions when the two of you, two of them can't agree. 
And that way they don't have to go to court and they don't have to deal with those types of issues. You know, it's unfortunate when these things come up because it takes time and it also kind of percolates to the top, the distrust and disharmony in the family. So, you know, these are issues that come up and just common sense ways to get around them. And I've written down a slew of other questions and and information that I've received during the week. And of course, we'll be going over all of that. Here's an interesting business question. And I think I I knew the answer to this one once I read it. Uh, This was a question that came to me during last week, actually. And I just made a note about it. So it had to do with an LLC and it had to do with operating a business. Excuse me. What happens if I sell homemade buttercream cake through Instagram without a license in Rhode Island? Okay. Hmm. I started my cake account last year. I set up my LLC for my company. I'm in Rhode Island. Now, I didn't know I needed to register. So I've been selling cakes for over six months without a license. What's the worst that could happen? Okay, so interestingly enough, Rhode Island does have a law that says that if you bake goods out of your home, you can still register. You don't need a complete food services license, believe it or not, and you can register. So what happens if you're baking goods out of your home and you're selling them and you're not registered? Or, for example, you're operating a business out of your home and perhaps you're not registered with the state as a business or you don't have the appropriate licensing, well, number one, they can fine you, okay? Uh, They could fine you, substantially fine you. And in number two, they could bar you from getting a license in the future or actually proactively suspend you having the right to get a license, okay? So the best way to handle the situation, I, I truly believe, is to... Go get the license now before it becomes a problem later. Sticking your head in the sand, taking the ostrich approach is never the best alternative, okay? So if you find out that maybe you're doing something improperly or you're doing something without the appropriate licenses, or maybe a license has been suspended and um, you discontinued to work, and you didn't go through the renewal process, find out, talk to somebody what it's going to take to get it straightened out. You know, the worst case scenario is taking the ostrich approach because the fines compound, the penalties compound, and especially if it's a legalized process, for example, in Rhode Island, there is a legal process where you can get a license to sell baked goods out of your home then, you know, it's no harm, no foul. The state just wants to know what you're doing and it wants to make sure that it's collecting the proper taxes for your sales. Mm -hmm. A lot of people fall into that trap. And for your income. Why are sales taxes important to talk about? Because sales taxes, even if you have an LLC or a corporation, sales taxes and payroll taxes are considered trust fund taxes. So let's say you're an employer and you have an employee or 
five employees and you just start writing them checks every week, but you don't deduct or you don't submit to the division of taxation, your share of the payroll taxes, maybe because you're short that week, or maybe because you didn't have enough income come in and you start to let that slide to a point where the division of taxation starts assessing you significant penalties and interest on that money. Just because you have a corporation or LLC, as the owner of that corporation or LLC, you are responsible personally for that debt. And the same goes to sales taxes, which is most likely why this particular individual who contacted me, even though it's a legal thing to do, the state wants you to have that license because most likely they want to make sure they're supposed to be collecting any sales taxes. If you have employees, any payroll taxes um, or any income taxes on the money that you're earning. So very interesting question, but always better to be proactive. Don't take the ostrich approach. Don't stick your head in the sand and hope it will get better at a later date. It never does. It never does. You know, um, Jake's telling me we have one more minute to go before we have to take our second break. But I just wanted to raise this one other question. Um, somebody contacted me about possibly settling a debt. And this had to do with the tax issue. So apparently they had a slew of credit cards. They put themselves into a credit consolidation program. And they have a, they have a very, very, very high failure rate because most creditors have no obligation to accept what it is you're offering. In other words, when you go into a credit consolidation program, most of the time, almost all the fees that you're paying up front are the fees to this particular company. In the meantime, this company is supposed to start negotiating on your behalf payments to pay these creditors, whether they're credit cards, debt collectors, whatever they are. However, if they don't want to accept that payment, they can still pursue you in civil court to get a judgment, to put a lien on your home, or garnish your wages. Now, this particular individual started in one of those programs and had a different issue. They settled one of the debts. So they settled a credit card with Bank of America. They owed eight thousand, and they settled it for six. Okay, which means that Bank of America finally accepted six thousand dollars of payments for the eight thousand dollars of debt, and that was closed out. Now they came to me because they still have a slew of other debts, and now they're being sued. But they also came to me because they got a letter from the IRS saying that they, their taxes needed to be amended. We do have callers on the line, and we have Dave and then Chuck. So let's just get right into the calls. Uh, Dave, you're on the air with a question, with a business tax question. How can I help you? Hey, hey, yes, good morning, Stephen. So as a follow-up to your last um, uh, conversation, your last issue a couple of minutes ago, what if somebody has a small business in the state of Rhode Island, however, um, the sales take place on the internet. The, do, do, does all the um, um, you know crosses have uh, T's have to be crossed? And 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 the way you just explained it, if you had like a brick and mortar. Oh, that's a really good question. 
I, you know, are goods and services being provided out of this state or another state? Uh, yes. Yeah. So the question would be, let, let's just say you're selling, oh, I don't know, jewelry um, okay. to somebody in Chicago. So I, I send it to them via U, you know, UPS. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you, um, do I have to pay taxes on that sale? Hmm. Or so, charge them taxes? Let me put it that way. Yeah. So generally, when you're one merchant selling to another merchant, Oftentimes, there's what's called a sales tax exception because you're only going to get the sales tax only applies generally to the end run user. But most of the time, you need to get that from the division of taxation. Have you, um, do you file a tax return where you report these items on a profit and loss, like on a business tax return? I I haven't. even begun. I'm just thinking about it at this point. I want to, you know, kind of get my ducks in a row. I then I would say probably if you're going to be selling a product and you're going to be producing it yourself as a manufacturer and you're not going to be selling it to individuals, you probably do you're not going to be in a situation where you're going to have to get or be collecting sales tax. But but you should definitely check with the division of taxation and probably you're going to need a sales tax number. You're probably going to need, if you're going to have an LLC in Rhode Island, that's perfectly fine. Um, And um, if you're going to have employees, you definitely want to use a payroll company um, to help manage your employees. Um, Unless they're 1099 employees, for example, they're independent contractors. But remember, independent contractors are people where you give an assignment to and then they conduct that assignment on their own time. So, for example, if you hired me to write a will for you, I'm an independent contractor because you're not telling me where to be, when to be, and how long. That's the difference. Do you, are you going to have employees? It, it actually is all dependent on, on the um, uh, you know the amount of business we do. We could fall flat. And I could do everything myself, or if I need one person or five people, you know, it, it's hard to tell at this point. Oh, okay, great. Well, congratulations, congratulations on a new business venture. I think that's going to be fantastic. But I would recommend that you get all the licensing that you need. Um, I, I, you know, I'd even recommend that you contact a payroll company, just mm-hmm. if you are going to be having payroll. Um, it just in case so you're set up with whatever light, whatever payroll uh, you need. And that way you, you never have to worry about TDI calculations or calculations for whatever, you know, a lot of people in small businesses will employ or put on the books or put on the records, you know, uh, family members. And that way they start earning social security money and they start mm-hmm. earning, um, you know, some small amount of money. And it starts going through payroll. If you don't put it through payroll, they never start building towards that social security earnings amount, TDI, or unemployment either. So just right, just a right. just a thought. And when you when you're setting up a business, there's a lot of advantages to setting up a business because there's a lot of exceptions that you can take as expenses, um, as business expenses. So you know, just some thoughts. But I, I would definitely, if you're going to be producing a product. I think you most likely you're going to need 
um, some licensing. Are you going to have a do you have a location, a commercial location or? Well, no, no, I don't, because most of the work is farmed out. In other words, you can farm farm out the plating to a plater, so you don't need a location for that. You just take it to, to them, in other words. Okay. Um, so the only physical thing you're doing is putting it in a box and, and sending it out. Oh, okay. All right. So I, I, you may very well need a, a sales tax number. You may very well need a business license through the Department of Business Regulations. Um, so I would start with Rhode Island Division of Taxation and Department of Business Regulation to see if you need any of those business licenses to operate. Okay. And one, one quick question on LLCs, if I may. Yes. Um, I, and, and I could be wrong. Um, from what I understand, an LLC, a lot of the times it's, 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 it shows up on your personal income tax. Is that true? Or? Well, an LLC, yes, an LLC does. Um, so with an LLC, what ends up happening is um, basically all of your income and all of your expenses flow through. And this is very similar to an S-corporation they flow through to your personal return, the net income or net expenses. So, you know, or you can just report them. For example, if you disregard yourself as an entity, you just report it on what's called a Schedule C. So that way you don't have to make a separate tax filing. Um, you know, there are some advantages to that and there are some disadvantages. As an LLC, just so you know, as an LLC, you can treat yourself as a partnership, which you could treat yourself as a corporation, or you could treat yourself as what's called a disregarded entity, which means that um, you have a, a you, you just report everything as if it's your own. It makes it just simpler for your tax preparer, but many times people will want to treat themselves perhaps as a corporation um, to keep all of their filings separate from their personal. Um, okay, so that, that is to doable. Tax, tax advisor about that. Right, so that that would be doable. Where if someone looked at your your personal income tax return, there's no mention of the corporation that you may own. That's right. So a okay. lot of times, even as an LLC, you can file um, an ex, you can file this specific form with the IRS to be treated as an S corporation where there would be a separate tax return file. But in that case, I would probably say just form an S corp and it's, it's just as easy. You form an S corp. Now you have two separate filings, two separate things and, and you just move on. Right. Right. That seems a little simpler. Yeah. Keep it, yeah, keep it separate and just, apart. You know, it doesn't make sense to, to go LLC route and then make that election. That's just my opinion. But I mean, right. you know, you can obviously talk to your tax preparer about it. Right. Gotcha. All right. All right, Stephen. Thank you for the information. You got it. Thanks for calling in. Next up, we have Chuck from Riverside who has a contract question. Hi, Chuck. You're on the air with Stephen. How can I help you today? Hey, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you for taking a call. Um, sure. Just a quick, I'll give you a quick story here. Uh, me and my fiance were getting married in Pennsylvania. Um, signed a contract in May for the banquet hall in, in a hotel block. And um, we just found out a couple months ago that they're going to be demolishing the hotel. Um, they're telling us sometime next year after our event, 
And anyone that's booked after that, they've been given refunds to, but they're not willing to give us a, a refund because they're saying it's going to be out past that. Our question is a lot of the staff seems to to be leaving. Actually, the woman that actually set up the contract just told us she's leaving, um, but not to worry about it because everything will be taken care of. Do we do we have any um, rights to cancel oh. without losing a deposit? Yeah, and w- when you say, all right, can Chuck, can you just hold on? After, well, actually, Jake, can we push this break so we can talk to Chuck? All right, Jake says we can push this break. So, Chuck, that that's kind of disconcerting. So when were you supposed to be getting married? Like, wh- when is the marriage? Uh, the, it's New Year's Eve, December 31st. Okay, all right. And they're going to be out. Of, they're going to be out of business shortly thereafter, or you're the last wedding. There's, well, they're saying they're saying June of next year. Um, but what we're seeing is like if the chef leaves, you know, if some of the staff leaves, you know, it's not the same people when we originally signed a contract that are going to be there. Do we have any options to get out of the contract without losing? Right. Um, and you're, you're I mean, but you're sick not six months, but you're five months out and they're telling you that you're beyond the cancellation date. We can cancel within three to six months, but they're telling us they, the contract says 75% um, of the total estimated revenue. We've put 10,000 down. They're telling us they will take seven, uh, 75% of the deposit. So $7,000 if we were to get out now. Ouch. Boy, in, in a, a, the event that's may very well go contract. on. Yeah, the event may very well go on without a without a hitch, but we're just worried if if this gets pushed up, um, or like I said, if the staff that we agreed to is gone, you know, we're we just have to gonna have to deal with what they give us. Unfortunately, if there's no way out, I think. Well, obviously, option one is to cancel the exercise your option to cancel. You have three options. Option one is exercise your option to cancel the contract and get 2500 Option two is to try to renegotiate the contract with them and maybe end up getting 5000 back because they don't want to go through the headache. Option three um, is to have your event. And hopefully right. they serve good food and they have good service. I would suspect, I mean, look, I worked in the restaurant. I waited tables for... 10 years. I did banquet. I did anything you can imagine. Uh, I would suspect that if they're not closing until six months after your event, that those types of significant changes would be minimized. Um, uh, If you were getting married in March, I would then suspect that probably your concerns would be really heightened at that point. In in my eyes, having worked in the, the businesses, knowing how restaurants are, when staff leaves, when staff gets nervous, it's extremely transient. Um, but most of the time, you know, people like the chefs or like the sous chef um, or even a lot of the wait staff, they're not going to jump ship in the middle of December. Most of the time, they, they probably stick it out until closer to April, March, maybe even May before they jump ship. Okay. That was good to uh, know. So, I just uh, wanted to... So, the question is, do you still want to, the, the real question is, it's certainly a risk, okay? And I can appreciate that risk because you certainly don't want to show up, have it being understaffed, 
or the food being terrible and clearly you're paying a lot of money for this venue um, and you don't want that to happen. But just based on personal experience in being in the businesses, you know, I might say to you that I don't think that it's it's kind of far out from the June date that you're going to have everybody jump ship. But if you're if okay. your fiance is really nervous about it, you know, maybe what you do is you say, look, can we work something out here? You know, um, you know, just split it in half and move on. You know, unfortunately, you did sign the contract and the contracts down there. So you're going to be subject to that state's laws. And, sure. you know, by the time you hire an attorney in that state to argue this issue for you, it's going to cost you more than it's it, you're going to lose out on anyway. So, you know, they may very well say, yeah, let's split the difference and call it a day and do the $5,000. But, uh, you know, if everybody's already planned for it, I don't think that even if the head chef left, I'm just thinking of common sense advice, you still have two sous chefs and the backup kitchen staff. I doubt people are jumping ship in December to go someplace else six months out. It just seems to me that, yeah, you, you may have some short staff there. Maybe you're going to be having the sous chefs, something along those lines. But, you know, I guess that's the risk that they're putting on you, which is unfair. That's an unfair risk sure. to put on you. But that's the risk they're putting on you and your fiance. Okay. I, I appreciate the advice. All right, Chuck. Best of luck. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you. You got it. So this is attorney Steve Lovecchio, host of Legal Tips on WPRO. Um, boy, uh, that hour went by really quick. You know, if you find yourself dealing with a problem, maybe um, you don't know where to turn. Maybe you can't get a call back from your attorney. I've been practicing law now 26 years in Rhode Island and Massachusetts. Uh, I've tried cases, handled zoning cases, probate cases, personal injury cases, um, and of course, if there's an area of the law that I don't practice specifically in, I have a wide range of contacts. For example, let's say we have a situation where you need social security application or Medicaid benefits. I have an attorney for that. Or let's say you're arrested. I have an attorney for that. And I work closely with a specific set of attorneys, but you know, my practice has afforded me the opportunity to gain a lot of knowledge, which I bring to you every week here, and a lot of experience. And as you always heard me say, if you don't have experience in a lot of areas of law, it's very difficult to help people because real estate can touch probate, can touch bankruptcy, can touch a divorce. A divorce can touch all of those too. And that would include issues of uh, testamentary issues and wills and trusts estate planning, you have to understand how laws interact with one another to be able to give people the proper advice. Of course, and if you're looking for an attorney, you think, hey, I may need an attorney in the future regarding this particular issue. You can always call me at the office at 401-490-4900. 401-490-4900. Tomorrow is a holiday, so I hope everybody has a wonderful holiday. And I understand that. And we'll be in the office on Tuesday. You can always find me online at spllaw.com, spllaw.com, or on the Google search. Again, this is attorney Steve Levake, your host of Legal Tips. See you next week.